Right, well, good morning, New Life Church. How's everybody? Good, good, good. Let's find our way back to our seats, and you can um, carry over with fellowship at the end of our gathering this morning. It's good to see everyone. Uh, again, I know, um, appreciate the prayer. Pastor Lindsay prayed for us all, our families and loved ones and places where we are during the day, because it is a contagious world out there. But we can um, certainly cling to the promises and the words, word of the Lord to take care of ourselves and use caution as well as faith. Amen? Faith. Well, listen, let me invite you to open up the, your Bibles with me. Two places today, New Testament, Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, and then go ahead and go all the way back to the beginning, chapter 2 of Genesis. Ephesians 5, and then we're going to go back to the beginning of Genesis chapter 2. Last week, uh, we did a message on one of our core values as New Life Church, being a, um, a person who follows Christ, uh, discipleship-driven, uh, making that a core value of our own life. And the title of that message was called Fit to Follow. You can get that message. You can listen or download it on our website, newlifechurchofjackson.org. You can go back and do that. And the week before that, uh, we, we did a message called on marriage and relationships called Having Healthy Expectations. Having Healthy Expectations. And actually, we're going to pick up back to that series, uh, Marriage and Relationships, today. And we're going to talk about cultivating love and relationship, or excuse me, love and happiness. Cultivating love and happiness. So... Um, I want to turn our attention to the Word of God here, and then we're going to dive into this today. Ephesians 5, verse 31, the Apostle Paul writes this here. He says, As the Scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again, I say each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Go all the way back to Genesis 2. I'm going to read several verses in, this, in the context here of 2 and 3. Verse 7, Genesis 2 verse 7 says, Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground, he breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. Jump over to verse 15. It says, The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it, but the Lord God warned him, You may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. So we see the power of choice, free will. Verse 18, Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. So the Lord God formed from the ground all the, wide, all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And the man chose a name for each one. Bear, elephant, giraffe, blackbird, bluebird. He gave, all, gave names to all the livestock, all the birds of the sky, and all the wild animals, and, but still 
There was no helper just right for him. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while the man slept, the Lord God took out of out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib and he brought her to the man. Verse 23. At last, he said, the man exclaimed. I mean, he was pretty excited. That's where the song, at last, my love has come along. I tell you, if I could sing, that would be the place to sing right there. And y'all be like, "Woo!" <laughs> at last, the man exclaimed. Thou, this one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called, whoa, man, woman. Because she has, was taken from man. Verse 24, this is where Paul gets his words out of Ephesians 5. It says, this explains why man leaves his father and his mother and he is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. And now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. And it would be great if that's where the story stayed. It doesn't. We have to move on to chapter 3, verse 6. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. And then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were open, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. And when the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today in humility in honor, trust, reverence, holding you up high because you really are over everything. You're over our lives. And you know what's best for us. You know what's best for our, our relationships, God. You know what's best for friendships. You know what's best for our callings. You know what's best for our jobs. You know what's best for our marriages. You know what's best for our school. You know what's best for each and every one of us. And Lord, we have a hard time sometimes of holding on to the control of our life. But today I pray that you would help us to trust you a whole lot more than we ever have before. And we would let go and we would let you. I pray, Lord, you would honor your word today. Speak life to us. God, we want to grow and live life with real life, abundant life. Not just a get-by mentality, but a true overcoming spirit that you give us through Christ Jesus. And I pray today you would call that forth, bring that forth alive out of your word, and let it jump in our hearts. Let it beat in our souls. Let it cause us to have a spring to our step as we approach each new day. And we honor you today for what you have to say to us. May we hear it. In the name of Jesus, I pray. And everybody who agrees with that can say.
Amen. Let me read you a story. An Arabic legend tells of two friends who were traveling through the desert. And when they had arrived at a certain point in their journey, they started to argue. One of them, offended and not wanting to speak, wrote in the sand, Today, my best friend slapped me in the face. They went on and reached an oasis where they decided to bathe. The one who had been slapped was about to drown. But he was saved by his friend. After recovering, he took his stiletto and carved on a rock. Today, my best friend saved my life. Intrigued, his friend asked, Why did you ride in the sand after I hurt you, and now you are carving on a stone? Smiling, his friend answered, Because you were my friend, and your offenses I ride in the sand where the winds of forgetfulness and forgiveness take care of erasing them. But I carve your help and love on the stone of memory of my heart, where no wind in all the world will be able to erase it. God's view of relationship and marriage is intended to reflect Christ's relationship with the church his people, his bride. And this relationship that Christ has with us, it's based on his love for who he is. He is love. It's based on his love. That's why we see in the story of the word of God and played out in our life, God pursues us even when we oftentimes have rejected him. That there is just this thing inside God for who he is and inside Jesus for who he is that won't stop coming after people because he loves us. And he continues to love and forgive in spite of our indifferences, our rejections, our pride, and all those things that happen inside of us and that we have because he's so full of himself, love, that that's who he is. And God's idea of marriage and relationship on earth, especially marriage, is intended to reflect that relationship of Christ and the church. And so when we talk about this idea of marriage and relationship and et cetera, we're in different places, different walks of life, different seasons, different categories, if you will, just depending on choices and the way life is and where we are and what's going on. But the thing about it is our current condition of of where we, what we have in our world full of hate and sadness. Our world's conditions are full of race, racism and prejudice. Our world is full of bitterness and resentment and offense. Our world is just full of a lot of bad things, and it's because of the fall of man way back in Genesis chapter 3. It goes all the way, traced all the way back to that point in time. But here's the deal about God is regardless of our current conditions, you and I, people of God, can experience a kingdom outcome in our marriages, in our relationships on earth, and our relationship with God himself. That's not based on current conditions, but it's based on truth, and that is rooted in the love of God. You see, this first union was started and built on love. 
right here we see, I mean, they were love, they, all these ingredients of love. You had passion, you had intimacy, you had commitment between Adam and Eve, and all, you see all these things playing out, nothing but love, and they were truly happy. They were naked and didn't feel any shame about it. They were, they, they were good. They were solid. They were committed to each other. But then things turned. Things changed. And we see that toxins came into this world, and it created some real issues with relationship. Relationship up until that time was perfect. No mess-ups, no misunderstandings, no doubts of do you love me, no, no insecurities or any of that kind of stuff. And every, Adam and Eve were content because it was based on love, and they were truly, truly, truly happy, regardless of where they were. They, it was perfect. But then, like I said, entered into this world some toxins that began to ruin these relationships. There's this scientific study that was done a while back of high school seniors and a group of couples who had been married for over 20 years. And it found that both groups had a more romantic, passionate view of love than couples who were, who were married less than five years. And they concluded that high school students had not given up on their romantic view of love. It's going to be great. Be so good. We'll never argue. <laughs> Somebody's been married longer than 20 years. It's <laughs> exactly right. And the older couples were enjoying a boomerang passion as a result of their long term investment by tending to their marriages. So, cultivating love in a relationship is vital to its success. You got to stir up the passion. You got to stir up the intimacy and you got to reinforce the commitment because here's here's the deal. The more we invest rightly in relationship, the greater the return will be given rightly back to us. And that is what's called hard work. If you want a successful marriage and you want a loving marriage and you want a happy marriage and you want relationships on earth to be good, Here's the deal. we got to work at it, folks. It doesn't just pop up out of the sky like a pop-up book that we read to our children. No, there's hard work involved. You've got to invest the right things. And the, and the more you invest, you cultivate it, the greater and the better the return will be. Just hoping for a better marriage, just hoping for better relationships, just hoping that my relationship with God will get better doesn't do anything. We've got to put in the work. We've got to invest our time. We've got to invest our sensitivity. We've got to invest our heart. We've got to invest our will. So cultivating love is the work Cultivating happiness is of the will. It's a choice. It's a choice of the attitude. A choice of the attitude. We all have attitudes. We all got toods, every single one of us. All of us have attitudes. It just depends on what type of attitude we have. Does anybody like flying airplanes or flying on an airplane? A few? Yeah. How many of you have flown in the last year? Quite a few. You got some frequent flyer miles built up? few of you do. Here's something interesting that I found about an airplane. 
is that, is, is that the most important thing about landing an airplane is the, is the attitude of the plane, not the altitude, the attitude of the plane. The attitude of the plane has to do, do with the nose of the plane. From what I read, the pilot says if the nose is too high, the plane, when it lands, it'll bounce. If the nose is too low, then the plane could lose control and crash. So the trick to a smooth landing is having the right attitude in spite of the atmospheric conditions. So the important aspect of a smooth marriage and relationships on earth is having the right attitude in spite of circumstances. Now I know as humans, we like everything to be perfect so that we can be happy. Right? It's just the fact that we often get our feathers ruffled when things aren't great, and therefore we take on a sour attitude. And here's the reality is our happiness is not based on a circumstance. That it helps can enhance it as long as the circumstance is good. Obviously, that feeds into the good side of us, but circumstances should not determine our attitude. We have a choice over our attitude in spite of the atmospheric conditions. And, I, and, and this, this whole message of relations, marriage and relationships is not just solely tied to the marriage relationship, though it's a big part of this. It's also tied to our earthly relationships that we have. Think about the people we're interacting with and we're involved with on a daily basis. What's the atmospheric condition like? And how often do we allow the atmospheric condition, the circumstance around us, to determine the attitude that we have in the environment that we live, in the environment where we work, the environment where we go to school? Right? Think about that. Because we cater too much to, having, to hoping to have the right condition in order for my attitude to be good. Oftentimes we might... Uh, get up in the morning and think, man, I sure hope they are. That that, that, that person on the other side of that bed is going to act right today. <laughs> I hope they got my coffee made. Because if they don't have my coffee made, I'm going to walk in there and be like, what is up with you? <laughs> now, you know I don't like that much sugar in my coffee. They better put the right amount of sugar in my coffee. Or I hope so-and-so at work today, man, I hope they just don't have all that nonsense going on in their life. All they want to do is, no, 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 me. I'm just trying to go to work, trying to make a living. I ain't got time for that. Right? Well, I sure hope my kids act right. Lord, you and me know something about that yesterday, because it was about to be World War III in the Smith household. <laughs> and mom and dad were losing. Mom and dad were losing. Don't tell them that, though. Don't let them think. Don't let them know they outnumbered us. What were we thinking? What were you thinking, Thomas? Come on, man. How many you got now? Oh, and he's conveniently gone. Perfect timing, worship leader. <laughs> but honestly, how often do we allow the circumstances, man, to determine our attitude? It's a choice. It's, it's, a, it's a will issue. And so for the last 
part of this, I just I want to zero back into the story here in Genesis 3. And it brings out three toxins that ruin relationships of any kind. Ruins marital relationships, family relationships, earthly relationships, and it has an effect on our relationship with our God as well. Three toxins that come into play. Verse 9 says, The Lord God called to the man and he said, Where are you? God calling man. He knows where he's at. Another viewpoint of God's love for humanity. He knows where man is. He knows where we are. But he still pursues. He's still calling your name and he's still coming after you. He says, where are you? In verse 10, the man replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. The first toxin here that can ruin and destroy relationships is that of self-pity. Self-pity. Self-pity says, I can't, and it compares itself with that of others. Self-pity. Adam said, I heard you, so I hid because I was afraid because of my condition. I can't face you. I'm not. Something's not right with me, God. I can't get to you. I can't reveal my life to you. I can't answer you. Something, there's things in me that just aren't right, God. It reminds me, the self-pity mindset reminds me of the, of a, of the lame man at the pool of Bethesda in John chapter 5. That this man had been in that condition and lame invalid for 38 years. And it said Jesus walked up to that man in that, around the pool of all these sick people. And he saw that man 38 years in that condition. And, he, and this is what he said to the man. He said, hey, do you want to get well? Or do you, want to, you, you want your life to change? And you know what the man said? The man said, I can't. He said, I can't. He said, every time the waters get stirred up, I have nobody to put me in. And somebody else always gets there ahead of me. The man had self-pity. And the Lord, I don't know exactly, maybe everything he might have said that wasn't perhaps written down maybe, but he didn't. He, he basically was getting at this guy and he's like, look, I didn't ask you about all that. I didn't ask you if somebody was here to help you. I didn't ask you if you could get in there before anybody else. I just asked you a question. Do you want to get well? Do you want your life to change? Do you want to be better? Do you want yourself to be different? I didn't ask you for all these other things, your I can't and your comparisons. I just ask you this question. Do you want to get well? And the Lord asks us that all the time. Do you really want your life to be better? Do you want to change? Do you want things in you to be different? Well, I can't. See this person I'm married to? Well, I can't because, see, every time I try, then they lose it and blow up on me. Now, I know this doesn't apply to anybody in here today. This is for this section right here that's empty. And everybody that chose not to come because somehow they thought I was going to talk about marriage and relationships. So the rest of us, you're good, right? Everybody's good in the hood, yeah. 
And so self-pity says I can. It compares. It's, it says that everything and everyone is against me. And it compares itself, well, if I just had the brakes like so-and-so, man, if I just had the streak like them, dog, if I had the luck like they had, man, if I could just drive that car like that, mm. if I had the job like them, if I had the income like them, son, be on fire. Right? That's how self-pity mentality thinks. It, it says, I can't. And it can, oh, my, man, if I was married to that person and not this person. I know, not anybody here. It's this empty section I'm preaching to today. <laughs> right? Self-pity. It destroys and it, and it ruins relationships. But another toxin is in this world too. Verse 12 says, The man replied to God, he said, It was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit, and I ate it. And the Lord God asked the woman, What have you done? And she said, Well, it was the serpent who deceived me. That's why I ate it. The devil made me do it. Right? The devil, he gets blamed for a lot. Yeah, he don't get me wrong. He's done quite a mess. So the second toxin is blame. Blame has been around from right there, Genesis 3, 12, and 13, a long time. Blame. I blame you for my problem. I blame you for my circumstance. I blame you for my unhappiness. I blame you for my anger. I blame you for my depression. I blame you for what I have had to go through and what I, the way I feel right now. I blame you. Blame. It's a breakdown in personal responsibility. That's what blame is. It's a breakdown in personal responsibility. And it reminds me of the parable that Jesus spoke of that Matthew recorded in Matthew 25 of th the three servants where he, the master came to the three servants and he said, I'm going to give you something and I'm going away for a while and I'll be back. To one he gave five bags of silver, to one he gave two bags of silver, and to the other one he gave one bag of silver, and he left. And the one with five invested it, got five more. The one with two invested it, got two more. The one with one dug a hole and buried it. Master came back, hey, let's see, what have you done with your life? What have you done with what I have given you? The one with five said, Master, look, I took it, got it, invested it, got five more. Yeah. Got me rolling. The one with two got two. He said, I invested it, I got two more. Aren't you proud the master to both? Yes, awesome. You get to celebrate with me now. What about you, the one? Well, you see, I knew the kind of person you were, and so I was afraid, and so I took it and buried it in the ground. But here, here it is. It's exactly, count it, it's, everything's there, exactly what you gave me. And he said, that's not right. You wicked and lazy servant. You could have at least put some of it in the bank. I could have got some interest on it. You could have done something with what I gave you. But instead, you choose to blame me for your actions. You choose to blame me for your outcome. You choose to blame me for how you are. And you see, blame is a breakdown in personal 
responsibility. And friends, we're all good at it. Don't get me wrong. We all have a measure of it in us. That we can easily, quickly blame why we were late on somebody else. Blame our condition on somebody else. But blaming other people never gets us to successful life the way God intended it for it to be for us. And what we do, we blame our anger on others instead of saying, look, it's not your fault, it's mine, because it's a choice. We blame our condition on others instead of saying, you know what, it's not your fault, it's mine. I'm the one who has chosen this, taking responsibility. Blaming others is completely contrary to the principle of taking responsibility for our attitude. And that is not the trademark of a Christian. Toxins, self-pity, blame, think about it, ruins, destroys relationships. They exist. And the third one is this. Verse 16. It says, Then God said to the woman, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy, and in pain you will give birth. And you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. To the man, he said, since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree, whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. And all your life, you will struggle to scratch a living from it. And can you imagine out of that pain and out of that hard labor on both sides, that resentment could build up? And that's the third toxin, resentment. Resentment destroys and ruins relationship. Resentment is like cancer. It starts small, but it grows and spreads larger. It takes over. I think one of the big stories that I think really magnifies resentment, bitterness, jealousy, is that of King Saul and the upcoming King David in 1 Samuel 18. And David had earlier, you know, been selected to be the new king by God through Samuel, the prophet, anointed, all that good stuff, came and whooped Goliath's tail, took down the giant, did all that. And everybody was like, "Woo! there's David, look at him. Saul, his thousands, but David, his tens of thousands. Everybody was like, what's up, David? Yeah. Saul, you, you, you know, you can improve a little bit, son, but... But uh, David, now David's the man. And so it said in 1 Samuel 18 that Saul began to eye David with a jealous eye. And so and it said that Saul had a spear in his hand, but David had the harp in his hand. And Saul chased David with the spear for years, for a long time, and ended up dying a jealous person. Envy, resentment spread through his veins like a cancer. And he lived just with rage, fits of rage and bitterness and, and just hatred and all those things attached to that. But David, David ended up becoming the next king. Israel and in fact David 
got so convicted one day. He was hiding from Saul. He was in a cave, and Saul came in to use the bathroom, and David saw Saul's robe, and he cut the corner of his robe and just to let Saul know, hey, I could have killed you. I could have taken you out. And immediately David felt guilty. He said, how could I touch the Lord's anointed like that? It is not right for me to have done that thing. David guarding his heart from resentment to get in. Because once you let resentment in and you let it take its course and you don't stop it and you don't check it, you don't do anything about it, guess what? It starts to just spread all over you. And then everything you see, everybody you look at, you eye them with jealousy. You eye them with contempt. You view them as, man, look at them. They don't deserve any of that. How dare they get that? And it could even be people in the household of faith. If we're not careful, resentment will ruin relationships. Self-pity, blame, resentment. And we become, and so people who live with a resentment attitude, we rehearse the injustices done against us. And we replay the stories over and over again in our mind. That it just can't seem to, to, to filter out. We're rehearsing and we're replaying everything that was done against us that hurt us, that brought us harm, that brought us disappointment, that, that was something done against us. And we can't seem to just let it go. We, can't, we have a hard time of just cutting it off and letting it go. Why? Because bitterness and resentment are now like a root inside of us. And it spreads. In fact, we're so convinced, people of resentment are so convinced that the object of their resentment is the source of their own unhappiness. And it kind of really circulates blame and self-pity back into the mix. And it just seems to not ever, ever stop. Friend, that is not a place where any person ever wants to live, especially very long, at all. Because it will rob you of a fruitful relationship with others, and it will rob you with a fruitful relationship that God has for you. Because you view God in that eye of contempt, in the eye of blame, in the eye of self-pity. Well, and all these things come back around. And so as a result, Adam and Eve giving birth to self-pity and well, the sin did. Their disobedience gave birth to self-pity and blame and resentment. And as a result, their family grows and continues on. And it gives birth to jealousy, gives birth to murder, gives birth to lust. And it gives birth to all these types of evil things that are in our earth today and in our world today. And by the time you get to Genesis chapter 6, God is so upset and so distraught in his heart. That he's looking at humans that he created, and he's like, this can't go on. They continue to make the wrong choices. They continue to do the things that aren't honoring to me, that aren't good for them. And they keep living in this cycle of perpetual, you know, re repeating this stuff. And look where they are. And he said, i got to just end this thing. And then it says in chapter 6, verse 6, it said, this broke God's heart. It breaks God's heart. When marriages, when relationships, when people allow self-pity, the toxin of blame and resentment thrive in us. It breaks his heart because he knows what the outcome will do to him.
it destroys. It destroys. So every unfair, every unjust thing that has ever been done to you and to me, the sooner we let God forgive us and heal us and we forgive others, the quicker we move on and become stronger and healthier within. There's not anything that is worth holding on to for the rest of your life that God can't heal you from. Doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. And it might not even be your fault that it happened. In fact, most of those things aren't our fault. We're the bystander of someone else's actions. And it hurts. And sometimes we don't know what to do with it, which is where we need to let God in and let Him heal us and not hold that against any person. You hold that against a person, guess what? You hold that person higher than God. You give them power over your life. When you harbor unforgiveness and bitterness and blame and all that in your life towards somebody else, guess what? You're letting those people be bigger in you than God can be. But it takes trust to let God in. But here's the thing about God. He's perfect. He'll never let you down. And He'll never vacate the premises. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. And so those things broke God's heart. And then it said, chapter 6, verse 8, it said, But Noah, Noah found favor with the Lord. And so some from Noah forward all the way to Jesus Christ's ultimate sacrifice of Jesus, that is how you and I find favor with God today, is through Christ Jesus. We find favor with the Lord. So God then, Jesus, because Jesus, He's love and He's perfect, then here's what He does. He takes our self-pity. We give it to Him and we're like, yeah, this ain't right. I'm tired of wallowing in this stuff. Like the lame man, for 38 years, he had a two-foot by four-foot mat. That was the existence of his life in this little square patch right here. And he could go nowhere, do no thing, unless someone took him. And the Lord said, hey, do you want to get well? And he said, I can't. And he said, do you want to get well? And, he, and, and Jesus said, stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. I'll take your self-pity away from you, and I'll change your life if you let me. If you let me change your life, I'll love you so good. I'll love you so much. I'll forgive everything and I'll heal your body and you'll no longer be the condition that you are. You'll be different. Your situation will change because inside you changed. And you'll take self-pity and turn it into selflessness. See, Jesus, if we let him in and we let him oversee and overcome every other thing inside of us that we hold, against other people and we blame other people for our predicament. We blame other people for whatever and the way we feel and all that stuff. We will just stop doing that and take personal responsibility. Even if it might have been somebody else's fault that did that to us, we still have a choice not to get bitter. It's a choice. And the way we can make that right choice is through Christ Jesus. It's through Christ Jesus. And we let him in He takes the blame, and he makes us better. He's so good at it. He's so good at it. And if we will stop holding on to grudges, and we will stop letting somebody else's whatever offend us, 
I'm offended that you're offended. Well, I'm offended that you're offended that I'm offended. Well, I'm offended that you're offended. I'm offended you're offended. I'm offended. Hey, we're all offended. I don't like the way you walk. I'm offended at that. I don't like what you drive. I'm offended. I don't like what you wear. I'm offended at that. What's up with you? How do you get all the good stuff? How do you have that in your life? And I have nothing. I'm offended. I'm, I'm jealous. Because Jesus is not the object of our affection. That person is. That issue is. That situation is. And we become so consumed. Oh, man. The devil is so good to get us so consumed with stuff. That when we let that person rise up in us and be bigger than the love of God... We build our life around a person and not the perfect one, Jesus. And listen, he is so good at what he does that he can take out resentment if we'll let him. And he'll restore us. How do we find favor with God? Things break his heart. His heart is broken over the stuff that happens to us. His heart is broken over the things that you and I allow to fester and flourish that aren't good and godly and wholesome and holy. It breaks his heart. But what changes that inside of us? What changes that inside of us? Jesus. Jesus changes that inside of us. 